So, so you were looking in the mirror? We were looking in the mirror, and, and, you know, I had on this um, little thin white dress, long dress, and she had on this, it was like a pink-red color dress, mm -hmm. loud pink or something. We had bought them off the sale rack for like $40 a piece, and she was saying, you know, we look great, don't we? We look like everybody else here. And I said, no, Mom, I think we look like Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> so... Um, well, yeah, because I mean, in comparison to some of these gowns, these, you know, I mean, yeah. these women had on incredible gowns, let alone the girls who were actually being presented that night. But you did enjoy your time Oh, yeah, there. we had a great time. Okay. All right, so you, you had a good time, um, but uh, as you say, you were, you know, there weren't very many other blacks there. Mm -hmm. A few, though, because some were beginning. Is that is that right? There were like two or three others. Watching, or was there somebody? Watching. Whose child? No, 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 no one that was in it. Um, what year would you say? No, I'm was sorry. That was the first year. There was a Dr. Williams, Williams or something. His daughter was in it that year. That was the first time. Is it? What was it like to? Seemed seemingly in your life to be the first, like you were one of the few at Marion Institute, and and uh, um, and here you were. What what? How did that affect you? I didn't know at the time it was preparing me for a whole life of that, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, a whole life of being the first or oh. the only or one of the few and. Um, because I didn't understand why there weren't other people there, you know, why, where were the other, the variety, and... Did you ask? Sometimes, and they'd say, well, no one came, you know, that's the, that's the, for different events, you know, well, you know, anyone could have come, but they didn't come, or... Where are we now, and in what situation? Um, be at a party, or, you know, a fundraiser, or... Um, a party where? Either one that you pay to go to, mm -hmm. um, or at someone's house. So yeah. your mom put you in these settings, or together you went to these? It was more me than her in those settings. Um, because she worked in a very diverse office, and mm -hmm. the whole office, the theme was race and so forth, discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, so it was more or less things, it was things I was involved in. I was always interested in theater. Um, so I was in 76, I was a part of BAM, which was the bicentennial group nationwide that did various things in various cities. BAM? BAM, B-H-A-M, Bicentennial Horizons of American Music and Arts or something like that. Um, so I was with the theater group of kids and we went, went around the city performing at different county parks and we performed at the Arch twice a week and it's like a little musical thing we did. Um, I was one of two blacks in that. But they said other blacks didn't try out, you know. Um, <sighs> These were like your own extracurricular activities mm -hmm. after school mm -hmm. on Saturday. Mm -hmm. 
um, ice skating. I liked ice skating a lot. So my mother would drop me off in Forest Park on a Saturday or Sunday and pick me up in a few hours, you know, because I'd just skate by myself. But I was always the only black person there. Um, so there was always this, you know, where are the other people or what are they doing? And um, the response I always got was, well, you know, it's not, none have applied for Mary I or we can't find any teachers or, or it's, you know, they choose to sit over there. You know, or why don't you guys come to our dances? That was the question at Mary I a lot of times, because we wouldn't usually didn't go to the school. They had little you dances. Your other friend mm -hmm. that was in your room. Mm -hmm. And the other two, the seniors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we all went to one. You know, but there was all this confusion because we wanted to hear black music, and you know, and they wanted to hear white music, and so if if. The, you know, the DJ was trying to compromise, and if you put on a black record, then all the white kids would sit down. <laughs> so then when they put on a white record, we'd all sit down and say, did you can't you, dance to that. And did you take a date, or did you? No, it was a mixer where you go and you meet people and stuff. So, no, I wouldn't have known anyone at that time to take. And that was the other thing. There were no blacks who came to the mixer. And Did someone dance with you? Um... I think we ended up dancing by ourselves, dancing together or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, so when you talked about what it was like, that you, you didn't talk about what it felt like. What, what felt like? What part what, of it? Being, being the first or the only or one of the few. Put it in your own words and how it, uh, how it made you feel being that way, being one of the first. I often felt like a freak. Um, I felt like maybe I shouldn't be here. I felt like I was betraying my race in some way, like I was selling out. That's how I felt about it in terms of my own race. Mm -hmm. As far as whites, I, I just felt like a big experiment a lot of times. You had used another word when you said that you would, wanted to discuss this part of it. You use the word bitter. Mm -hmm. Bitter because there was no excuse for all these places not to be more diverse. Um, bitter because um, a lot of times I felt that I had to, like at Mary I, I felt that I couldn't really express my anger. I, I, a lot of times I felt no one ever threatened me about my scholarship or part of my financial aid package, but I always felt that that, that was a possibility, you know, and don't, don't push it too far, you know, because you don't want to lose this. Um, so I guess for, for economic reasons, being black and being there, I felt um, controlled. I was, um, yeah, it's, it's extreme bitterness, and it still is. I mean, it still is when I walk in that room, you know, uh, anywhere, and I'm this only black person. 
Um, I'm, I'm not ignored. If anything, I'm given too much attention. Everybody wants to know who I am, why I'm there, what do I do? And that's, you know, that, that's the one. <laughs> the other week we were at a barbecue and every couple who came in sat down and said, so what do you do? They didn't, you know, all they knew was Kim and they wanted to know what I did. And it had nothing to do with, with you know, who I am. You know, and at Mary Eye, it was, well, what does your mother do, or what does your father do, or that kind of thing. Did you think those were questions addressed to you because you were black? Yeah, definitely. Did you know that, that those are questions that everyone asks anyway? Um, but now I'm learning the difference, because that's something my mother and I complain about all the time. and. Because she was noticing the same thing. And she felt like people were saying, what do you do that entitles you to be on this cruise with us? Mm -hmm. um, or I felt they were saying, what do you do to entitle that you would be interested in being here at the symphony? Now that I look back on it and look back on past jobs, I realize that there is a cultural difference in it. Blacks don't ask that. We usually don't do anything exciting. Whites ask it. A lot of times out of networking. Um, that's how you network. You start exchanging those business cards, you know. And with us, it's like we usually have a job that we hate, <laughs> a supervisor that we hate, a company that we hate. We make minimum wage. So the last thing you want to discuss is what do you do, you know. Um, you know that no one's doing anything that's of any benefit or can help anyone. So it's just, it's never asked, you know. Um, only, I guess, in the last few years have I found out a lot of the jobs that my relatives hold. It just was never, you know, they just work and they pay their bills and, you know, they grunt and moan, but you wouldn't care where they worked or they wouldn't have any influence there. <laughs> they certainly wouldn't have a business card. So, yeah. Lots of misconceptions. Mm-hmm. But for, for us, when we hear it, it's like, here's another white person trying to get in my business, you know, so. How do blacks, how do they uh, greet somebody or when they are introduced to somebody instead of this, what do you do? Um, what is more likely something that you would say to start a conversation or get to know You'd probably talk about whatever, wherever you were, what, you know, if you're at a church event or a fundraiser, or, it's usually more along that lines, mm -hmm. you know, or I have a cousin that looks just like you or, or something like that, or, you know, um, yeah. yeah. or something that happened to you on your way there? Um, so this has kind of followed you through to now. Mm -hmm. uh, now that you are aware, though, of how, you know, so what do you do? 
I still find it terribly obnoxious because as I, this barbecue we were at the other weekend, everyone asked. Yeah, Kent. yeah, and finally, after about the sixth person, you know, the sixth person came in in front of everybody, and she said, "So, what do you do, Kim?" And I said, "Nothing." <laughs> she said, "Nothing." I said, "Nothing," and everybody else had looked around because Ken had gone on and on about she's a writer, and you know, it's just I was just exhausted. I did not care to do that anymore. So. Um, by the time you came along, as far as being a kid and going to movies and all the places that you and your mom went, you could go just about anywhere as far as being... Um, there was always that feeling of you don't go too far south. Which I still, I still get the jitters now if we go and visit a friend of Ken's and he's too far south, you know, and I'm like, it's late at night and, you know, I worry about the car breaking down. Um, that's something I grew up with that's still there very much. Uh, well, some say St. Louis is a racially polarized city, mm -hmm. that there's two separate societies, mm -hmm. black and white. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Racism is in the air that we breathe and the water we drink. Definitely. Yep. Yeah, there were you know there were times when my mother and I would go out to Frontenac and get followed the whole time by by one of the you know the um, detective. What are they undercover? Oh, you mean in the stores? Yeah, in the stores. Security. Even though she had you know spent a thousand dollars with all these shopping bags in her hands. Um, they just follow us, you know. Um, Were you comfortable shopping out there, if if not for that? Um, yes, I guess we were we were more comfortable in a lot of ways with the stores than we were with a lot of the newer customers there. And a lot of the newer, because like Montaldo's expanded, or, or actually it's shrunk. But a lot of them, when they moved that far out, changed employees. Um, where my mother and I sh shopped at Saks and, and Montaldo's when it was on Maryland Plaza. And your mother was a model mm -hmm. at Saks Fifth Avenue on Maryland. Mm -hmm. And so. so she was Stores. Right, and I had always gone with her in the stores, and and she had always had like her own sales ladies who'd say, "Come here, I hit this for you. I knew you'd like this." And mm -hmm. there was a woman in the children's department who, in, at Saks, who always hid clothes for me that she knew my mother would buy. Um, so, in a sense, we felt like we were a part of those stores. Mm -hmm. And when they got out there, things changed. Yeah. You know, the attitudes were different, and people stared at us more. Um, and, you know, we were kind of looking like, what the hell are all of you doing in our stores anyway? <laughs> so, um, and people were looking at you like you couldn't afford to be there or you shouldn't be shopping there. Yeah, yeah it was just different. Um, so North St. Louis was home to you. Mm -hmm. But was, is there any other area that you felt acknowledged in besides that? No. Um, and you already said that you didn't want to go in South St. Louis. Right. 
Did want to go too far in the county? Out west. Yeah. Um, what are the areas that you feel where you see people of of different color interact with each other? The central west end, where they really interact. Mm -hmm. The Central West End. And, and can you define that a little? I know it's when you say Central West End, are there certain places or? Along uh, Euclid in Maryland, um, McPherson, over in that area. Yeah. Um, and where do you see people, uh, are you least likely to see people of color in I mean of different colors and mm -hmm. right. South St. Louis, North St. Louis, <laughs> West County, everywhere. everywhere. Okay. Um, do you think St. Louis is unique in its attitudes, uh, in its racial attitudes from other places? No, I think it's just about as horrible as everywhere else. Yeah. I'm probably more bitter now. Um, I'm not any more shocked. Nothing really surprises me anymore, but it still hurts. The thing the other week with the DJs on the air, all the people who wrote these letters to the Post-Dispatch supporting this, you know, they thought that it was okay, it was humorous, and um, but it had nothing, he wasn't telling a joke it was, you know, it had nothing to do with the topic. He just attacked this woman racially. And they were trying to make this issue of free speech and it's part of shock radio. And, um, you know, it's like I wanted to write down those names of all those people who wrote those letters to make sure I don't know them personally. And if I meet them, we don't become friends. Um, yeah, these two people, their names were? Um, God, what were their names? Steve and DC. Yeah. It's, it's, the racial thing, I guess what's appalling are not the people who are racist, those I can deal with, I know where they stand. It's the people who don't think they are, but yet who sees nothing wrong with what they said. Or for years who, you know, they said, well, I never had any problem against blacks, but you went and sat at the front of the bus. <laughs> um, so it's it's those people that still, in a in a sense, they're worse because they already think that they're advanced, um, that they have nothing to learn. They understand the problems. They're not racist. They don't want to hear it. Um, so they don't understand the subtleties. Um, and they still there's still no effort on their part to get to know blacks, you know. When, when they have me um, to a party, I'm still the only black person there, you know. And um, there's just no real sharing of, you know, who are you as a person. There's no getting to know a person intimately.
I think it just it has to be where people just want to. I don't think it can be enforced by laws. Um, I don't think it can be taught in churches. Um, you are married to Kent McLean, mm-hmm. who is white. Mm-hmm. Um, your friends are the people that you see, your acquaintances. Right? Um, how are they made up and how do you make your friends or your acquaintances, if you don't mind my asking? Mm. They're made up. Um, Made up as far as color, mm-hmm. probably half and half as far as black and white. Um, Are there other interracial couples like yourselves? We know a few. Um, it's very hard for us to be around other interracial couples. We met one couple the other week. They invited us to a barbecue and every couple there was interracial. And it just <laughs> made my skin crawl. You know, I felt like we should have on T-shirts and mouseketeer hats or something. I didn't understand what the statement was. Um, I think Kent, Kent and I have a, a philosophical difference with most other interracial couples. We do know that racism exists, that it's prevalent, that, you know, we don't live in that oh, you just, you know, I haven't experienced it before, and, you know, that whole thing. So we can't communicate with couples that come from that point of view. That, that it doesn't matter. Right. It's not happening. Yeah, it's, yeah. And it's colorblind. Right. Um, and then the others we can't deal with are the ones who um, won't date anyone unless they're black or unless they're white, you know, that whole thing that, you know, they only date people of another color. Um, I guess because it's, it's in, in like said, this thing with all these mixed couples was just too bizarre for me. Um, I just didn't get it. It's hard enough having an interracial relationship. It's hard enough just for the two people involved let alone extended family, friends, and society. And then to um, wear it like a badge. It's, um, it's really bothersome. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Okay. Um, if you had the power to change things, what do you Concerning what we've been talking about. Hmm. In St. Louis. I mean, I used to think if, you know, if we lived in, if everyone was one color, 
Um, if everyone had the exact same amount of money to start with, I don't know if any of those things would matter anymore. Um, the other fantasy was to take all whites and move them into a black neighborhood for a month. I don't think that would, you know, because um, we still continue to change it when it's in our own eyes. Um, I don't. I don't know if it can be changed, unless it's done individually. And how is that going to happen? People are going to have to sit down and talk. And talk honestly, not just, you know, even if it hurts or it offends, and then you explain why it offended you. But as long as there's that open, honest. But that means people have to spend time together. Now, how do people who, who have no way of meeting, um, you know, how do you make that happen? Why don't they have a way of meeting? I don't know. Um, you and I made it happen. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you work, there are people who work with blacks. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a black housekeeper, you know, do you ever, you know, do people ever find out where they live? You know, how do they get to your house? Um, what do they do in their spare time? You know, for all you, for all you know, they might sit home reading Chekhov. I mean, that kind of, there's never that communication. And because the assumption is that they're hired hands and they're dumb, um, they often come into work acting like that. You know, it's that, um, as we call it, put on your Mr. Charlie, <laughs> you know. You go around and you act stupid and you nod your head and you smile a lot, you know, and you do that when you need a tip, you know, or you're working as a doorman. And you come home and laugh about it, you know. It's exactly the, you know, the story of Amos and Andy. He laughed all the way to the bank. <laughs> but, um, because people, you know, I, I have friends who say, well, that's my housekeeper. I said, yeah, but when you get one of those girls from Sweden, to come and take care of your kids for a month or clean your house. You want to get to know her and, you know, you invite her whole family over, you know? So there is a difference. Uh, how do you do it? How do I do it? Mm -hmm. um, like, I meet a lot of people because I'm always in bookstores. Um, I think it takes a lot of people aback that, you know, why is this black woman talking to me? out of the blue, you know. Or I'll just start recommending books to them. I'm like, well, I think that's a better book on this topic if you're really interested in that whole thing. Can be done. Yeah, it's, it's, I know that I frighten a lot of people with it because I'm so blatant, I'm so upfront with it. Um, and when Kent and I are together, it's usually, it's really disarming because he and I will make racial jokes, you know, or, you know, little comments or we acknowledge it. It's there. It's a part of us. We don't leave it at home or, you know, so it's always there with us, you know. Um, and we have fun with it. Why did you and Kent meet? 
here in St. Louis, yeah. Although he at the time lived in San Francisco and I was about to move to LA. Um, let's see. Do you today, uh, well, what are the situations that occur during the day for you now, Kim, that make you consciously aware of your skin color? Um, Bill Clinton. <laughs> And this last Lanier woman. Well, you know, when you walked in today, I thought, shall we start with that? And I thought, if we do, we'll. <laughs> so, so let's do it. If it just happened today. That. Um, the thing in Texas, the, um, what was his name? David Koresh. Mm -hmm. That. Um, Saddam Hussein. It, it seems that this country doesn't have a problem bombing people of other colors. Um, we don't have a problem with calling them fanatics. Um, we don't have a problem destroying their religious um, monuments that they have. And in Texas, we spent millions of dollars in all these days with cameras and so forth with this equal lunatic in Texas because of the children. Um, to me, it was because the children were white. There were children in Iraq that we bombed. You know, those were women and children. But Americans' hearts didn't bleed over that. They didn't look at the television screen and, and cry about that like they did about these kids in Texas. Um, that's painful. Oh, okay, okay that's, I've merged yeah. her name, so. Tell me what, what angers you with the, or concerns you with this, or upsets you um, with the Manning Lanier. Which part of it? All of it. One that, you know, that maybe I haven't read enough. The excerpts they had in the paper yesterday from the things she's written, I didn't have a problem with. Um, she's certainly qualified. It just, it seems that that there's always um, a different set of rules for us. Um, it bothers me that Clinton cannot make a choice and stick to it and stand behind it. It also, it, it insults me that not only did he withdraw his nomination, which either right or wrong, but then he has to offend. He has to say if he had read her works, he, he wouldn't have nominated her in the first place. I mean, um, we have a problem of, of allowing people to be honest. That's, I think that's, all the, that's what clouds this, this whole thing about racism. And, you know, if you talk about it, then it, it comes back to, to sit there and backfires on you in some way. I was just disgusted last night when I heard about that. I think we all are, and everyone for a little bit of a different reason. Mm -hmm. but, uh, um, the role of the media in St. Louis in cementing or separating people of different color um, that takes in the radio, the newspaper, we've discussed the radio. Mm -hmm. um, 
the uh, what do you read and how do you see it in the newspaper? The Post every day, um, New York Times on Sundays. A lot of times I feel like it's slanted. Um, it seems to, it, it, I, I often feel like that, that no one is being a real newspaper anymore, that there are no real newspapers and real journalists who go out and ask further questions. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of just covering the press conference and printing the, you know, the handout you were given. There's no one um, doing any real work, and 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 and, or if they are, the editors aren't. It's not being published. I think if things like that did take place, Ronald Reagan never would have been president, um, and certainly not for two terms. But he he never would have gotten there in the first place. Okay, Kim. Um... What do you think that, is there, are there, is anything that you can think of that I haven't touched on with you? Uh, are there places that, uh, organizations, are there things that you belong to today? I mean, did you... I read books for, I read, um, what are they called? Books for the blind. Right. Textbooks. For the blind. I you, can't think of the actual name of it. Yeah, you read? Mm-hmm. That? Oh, that's great. Um, where do you do that? At home. Yeah, I mean, it's located here in St. Louis. They just uh -huh. mail me the tapes and the textbook. I used to be involved in the St. Louis Ballet and Crossroads School. I was on their boards. Uh, did you enjoy that? No. I'm not a meeting person. I don't I don't like the ceremony. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been looking for a job. Mm-hmm. For a while, uh, and you are right, and you're specialized. You do write, mm -hmm. um, so you're kind of looking for a special niche. You want to talk about that and what that has, how has it that has been for you? Um. See, I don't know if it's a special niche or if it's, well, I guess it is. I'm looking for the rich girl's jobs. <laughs> you know, the more creative jobs, the more challenging jobs. Um, they offer more freedom. They pay better. 
the jobs that you know the Mary I girls get after college before they until they get married, you know. Um, I feel like I deserve those chances and that I've earned them, you know. Um, but those are the jobs that are reserved for those girls, you know, and everyone else it's, you know, well, did you major in engineering? No, I didn't, you know. There's also that, that feeling that you haven't quite done enough, that you went to Mary I, but you graduated from Northwestern, but um, you were a stockbroker, but there's always this, you know, we, we call it the missing clause for black people, you know. Um, you're told that you've got to finish high school to apply for a job here, and then it's, well, you need to finish college. And then, well, we're only looking for people with master's degrees. There's, so there's always this, you, you always know that there's a loophole when it comes to you. And it, in a, a lot of ways, you just feel like it just doesn't matter. There's just going to be another, you know, or you need 10 years experience, which is insulting for a lot of jobs that take, you know, two days to learn that they would even ask that, you know. Um, Do you feel if you went in, okay, you graduated from your institute, you say it's a rich girl's job. So are you saying, does that mean that that's something that another girl from Mary Institute would get that job? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you went to Mary Institute. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm black. But you're black. Otherwise, you would get a particular job. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And supposed upbringing and understanding and appreciation. Yeah. Would you like to put that in one sentence in your own words? I mean, just what we've said together. I've been oh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I just feel that, you know, that um, there are other opportunities for whites with similar backgrounds. Um, you're given the chance, you know, pe positions are created for you a lot of places. They're saying, well, you have a lot of good ideas. When can you start? Versus we don't have anything right now for what you're looking for or that kind of thing. Um, people are willing to take more risk around you or with you, or for you, whatever. There's just a, there's a place for people, for whites with the same education, that I don't feel that blacks get, blacks either have to, they have to go on for Mary I and either become a doctor, or a lawyer, or an engineer, you know? But it's, it seems, it, it's almost as if you're stepping out of your place, you know? If you look for something else, or if I look for something else, yeah. Are you glad that you have the education that you do? Most of the time. 
I am. Um, and then some of the time, no, I, there are parts of me that, that are so bitter, I just think I should have been left in the darkness that I lived in. And then I wouldn't be bitter, I wouldn't be angry. Um, there are parts of me that, you know, when I'm, when I'm reading, I, I'm angry because I, I can't, I can't share it with anyone. You know, I can't go anywhere with my views on Middlemarch or George Eliot or women in this century or or the politics of women in writing through the years. Um, what do you mean you can't go anywhere? That that I have no outlet for it, for expressing it, for sharing it with someone. Um, that I have no um, I have no outlet for expressing you know what's wrong with um, black images on American film through the years you know why people find it offensive what particularly is offensive what should what what should they have found offensive um, it's it's just it's like I, I I feel like that I can read all the Dostoevsky or or um, Proust or whoever that I want, but it it just all has to stay locked inside. That there's no there's no outlet for it. There's no culture or community for it. For me. Are you saying that there's no one in the black community that you know that would want to discuss those things? Not. I think there might have been, but I think that they became more close to it as they got older. You know, it wasn't acceptable, um, it wasn't there. And it's only acceptable as long as you read those works on white terms. When you start reading them and and then translating them to black terms, then it's, you know, people are pushing you away. So if you and I discussed it, it wouldn't be the same as if you and another black friend? No. It would, it's just, you might feel differently if you and I start discussing it and then I put in the black point of view or the black angle on this character in this book, you know, or shouldn't these have been her issues? It's just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only lately beginning to call myself a feminist. I had for a long time a lot of problems um, with the feminist movement. I saw it as bored, middle-class white women um, and I think they still have a lot of those problems within the organizations. Mm -hmm. Their issues are equal treatment on jobs, equal pay, um, and for a lot of black women, it's getting a job. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
not equal anything. Um, our issues are more on um, just surviving, where theirs are on equal empowerment. And that's such a wide stretch, you know. And they're on the first step, or the second step in years. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when I'm around a group of white feminists and they're saying we, I'm looking at them saying you, you know, or y'all and us, however you want to phrase it. And, the, and that doesn't just happen in the feminist thing. Like I said, it happens in, in the newspaper, how we all read the newspaper differently, you know, what that means to me versus what it means to you. Um, it means that when, you know, I look at the, the uh, someone who killed somebody and their sentence versus a white person's sentence. So you feel like you don't have anybody to share those thoughts with? No, it's, I guess it's feeling like not having anyone to share it with who could either help change it or who could learn something from it. You know, if, if more blacks could share all of this with whites, there would be that bridge to starting to understand where all the hostilities come from. Um, instead, it's like I said, it's not talked about. Well, that's, that's kind of what I hope that doing these tapes would, would be helpful in. How we learn how you learn about whites, or where you learn about whites, or mm -hmm. uh, and then when you got out there, was it really that way? And yes, you said it was, mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully somebody will hear this or read this and think, wait, wait, that's not that's the way I felt. I don't need to feel that way, or I can identify with it. Yeah, I've got, I can reach out to somebody. Or, mm -hmm. This will give me this idea. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more of like looking into ourselves and seeing what each of us can do. Because yeah. I mean, for me personally, I there is a longing in me uh, to have an Asian friend. I don't, you know, I like Asian literature and I practice Zen. Um, but I don't know, I don't have a personal relationship. I feel an absence in my life because of that. The same about Jewish friends, you know. You you were my first. Um, I still don't understand the holidays. I've always wanted to go to someone's house for Hanukkah. You know, I, I want to understand what happens instead of that being this distant, I'm tired of reading in the Belva Plain novels or you know all the other things. Um, so for me, there's this absence of other people, of other understandings, where I guess for most of the world, there isn't. You know, it's continue to, to do what you know and be around who you know. Yes, you're saying that other people aren't isolated like you are? They choose to be isolated, is the difference. They, they're comfortable with that. Yeah. Where with me, I'm constantly banging a door down, trying to say, let me out of here. Uh, how about the films that you were talking about before? Mm -hmm. And talk about what you feel that people 
felt should should have been upset with or the stereotypes? Yeah, there was. Um, now I can't think of the name of it. There was a movie Whoopi Goldberg did a few years ago where she was a maid to this Claire's white heart. family. Yeah. Claire's heart. Yeah. I was so outraged when I left that movie theater. I was living in L.A. and I went and called Variety and I was going to take out an ad. <laughs> Is this the right film with the little boy? Yes, Claire's She's heart. And, you know, I wanted to write Whoopi these really nasty notes. And I was just, I, I went to work that day and I was just like waiting to pound somebody and people were like avoiding me because I was just so angry. And, you know, I'd call people and tell them about the movie and I was just mad. You know, I was just, I couldn't get over it, you know. And I called long distance telling people about it. You know, I was just calling my friends who are professors across the country. And I was so relieved about a week later, my mother sent me a clipping from one of the newspapers here, one of the black papers, where the, this guy had reviewed it and he had the same comments I did. You know, it's like somebody else saw it and felt choked by it, you know. Well, what was it about? Um, you know, it wasn't that she was playing a maid. I don't. We, we are maids. That's not an issue. It's just it's it's it was a it was a lack of understanding of the stereotypes of the past. Um, there were lots of scenes with her and the the guy. I guess he was her boyfriend or something. He was enlarging his eyes for the expressions, which was right out of the. Uh, step and fetch it. Um, this fact that this woman um, taking care of this little white boy took over all the significance for her in her life and her focus. The, the women in the beauty shop were all very all the black women were very um, loose, or whatever you want to call them, and body and sexual, and these images of black women as being a seductress. She was from the West Indies, though. Mm-hmm. And I, now it's vague. I can't even remember the other things about the movie. But it was just, it was constantly hitting past themes, past things that had been sores for people, I guess. I have the book, um, and maybe you want to take it home. Okay. Well, I always feel very proud when I go to see a Spike Lee movie, even if I don't agree 
with everything or I don't like part of the way he directed it or casted it. But it's it's because I I love his anger and you know, just like I was worried about will this affect my financial aid or Northwestern will this affect my financial aid or will I be denied a loan? He has those same problems in Hollywood with funding, and yet he still has his anger full-blown in front of the camera. I appreciate that. I appreciate um, the existence of Al Sharpton and Farrakhan. I don't agree with them on a lot of points, but I'm glad that at least there's someone yelling, expressing about something, making people, maybe, maybe making people think for a minute. Uh, I'm not saying they have the right way, but it's better than no way, you know, and it's, it's better than Clarence Thomas, you know, who just doesn't have any problems. Um, so those are the things that make me proud. I don't like rap music at all, but I'm I'm happy for the films that have come out that that are focused towards young black kids with the rap music and the whole bit. I'm happy that that now exists. I remember as a kid that you know to find out what was going to be on television with black people in it, it you had to read the back of the Jet magazine every week. And then you'd call people and you'd say, um, Flip Wilson's going to be on this show tonight. You know, and it was this whole, everyone phoned around to tell them. But I mean, the Jet Magazine was our TV guide, in a sense, because it told us what shows. Yeah. For, I mean, now people just take it for granted. You just see blacks on every show. But I mean, it just, you know, and we watched, we watched the news because Diane White was the weather woman near. You know, it was like wherever you had, a speck of a black person. You just became this champion of this show. Um, and you know, if everyone was gathered on the porch when um, Sanford and Son came on, they'd all, you know, pack up and, and go in the house. What about civil rights in St. Louis? I was thinking about when Percy Green ended the VP mm -hmm. um, as we knew it. Mm -hmm. uh, um, were you in, did you ever play any part or want to or uh, have anything to do with the civil rights? Now, I mean, you were too young. Right. I, when they closed Homer Phillips Hospital, I protested and marched and picketed and the whole thing. What else? As far as protesting or? Well, or, or yeah, or, or just following it. Is it something that you follow or that you keep up with? Yeah, I um, 
we have no civil rights. <laughs> it's, it's, I guess that's my bottom line. Yeah. It's a, you know, the country, the, the country and the city, we're just so polarized. Everyone, it, it's like we're in two worlds so no one can see the other side, let alone start to come together. Everybody's right in their own space. So, there was a, I'm talking about racism. There was a bank here in St. Louis I feel very bitter about. Major bank. Can I say names? Mm -hmm. It's oh. up to you. You know what might be with this, and it's up to you. Oh, Mark Twain. Um, they were looking for someone who had a background in financial sales and all of that. This was before I left, so this was back in 86, I guess. And I, you know, sent in my resume, applied for the job, and the woman called me, and she kind of interviewed me on the phone for an hour, and she was just tickled pink and said I sounded great, and she said, well, look, can we get you in right away? Can we rush you in? Because I, you know, you just sound perfect for this job. And so I think I went in the same day, or the next, I think it was the same day, and I go in, and she just thinks I'm wonderful. And I'm going to fit right in. And um, She's like, okay, now I've got to go to the other people to have you brought in. But I know it's going to work out. And I can't tell you when you'll start yet, but I'll be calling you with that. And she said, by the way, can you take another interview today? Um, so she asked if I could go on another interview that day. And I said, sure. So she sent me to another branch. Um, and I got there and, you know, the vice, whatever she was, one of the head people in charge of that branch interviewed me and she was like, oh, Kimberly, I'm looking forward to working with you and, you know, you're just wonderful and, and we're really lucky to have someone like you coming in. And so then the woman called and she wanted me to go to another interview, this time at the Ledoux branch. And I get there and the vice president of that branch on Lindbergh, he comes out and he says, he walk, I'm waiting in the lobby, he comes out and he says, so you're the one everyone's been raving about. Come in. So we go in and we talk and he's just having a great time and he has me talk to someone else and we're all having a great time. And then they send me to the Northland branch. And this woman has heard about me. And, you know, I'm just, for the first time in my life, I'm like, wow. Yeah. You know? And it was like I was just, I felt on every interview. You know, I was hitting it off with people. And um, the owner was a big art collector. And I can't remember what kind of art it was now, but I was explaining to some of the the people who were interviewing me who didn't understand it, I was talking to them about the art, and they are like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. But we're just, you know, I'm walking out of there, and I felt like I had six new friends. You know, these people, we were just this incredible rapport. So I go home, I'm waiting, so she calls me the next day, and she tells me, you know, it'll be a few more days. Um, they just, right now, they're trying to decide which branch they're going to send me to. 
So I have a friend who works at a Mark Twain who tells me that she's hurt that they're trying to get me at either the, um, the downtown branch. They wanted me at the downtown branch, but then they, she was saying maybe they just wanted a white male there because that was their clientele downtown. Um, so they're trying to figure out where to put me. So it's not that you don't have the job, it's just which place well, in your head. Yeah, right. So I'm now I'm calling this woman and she's not returning my phone calls. I write her a letter, get no response. Um and we had already discussed salary. Oh, and at the Northland branch, the woman said your office would be right here, you know. And um You'd probably, they're probably moving one of those up right now. It was a file cabinet or a chair or something. So I don't hear from Mark Twain. I can't get any response. So finally I go to EEOC and I file a complaint. I file a complaint um, based on discrimination, on sex and race, purely because I'm trying to get a response. What happened, you know? So you have to name, you know, so I just use those as my ploy to find out what happened. Well, they stalled for the longest, and finally we start, you know, we're battling it out, and, oh, they don't have any of those interviews. They don't have any of the files anymore. No records. No records. And the only thing they have is a note where someone said that I was very shy, um, very hesitant and, and shy. <laughs> and I'm looking at, you know, this guy who's interviewing me at EELC said, well, I can see that's a joke. But um, that, that was all they had. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't fit in because I was, oh, I was timid also was on there. So eventually I ended up losing it. You know, it was two years of paperwork, the change in all the in the laws. I mean, you have to be able well, to prove. They wanted, they stalled because they didn't have a place to put a black woman instead of putting me in a bank where they had positions. It would seem to me that they could have been very honest with you, maybe. I guess they can't be honest. No. It doesn't work. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, it's also how do they decide where you should fit? I mean, if you have the same yeah. information, I wasn't playing a Houdini and creating numbers for people, you know, so. Yeah. Needless to say, I'll never bank there again. Um, Waiting on them to go out of business. <laughs> Identification. You, you did say, when I asked you how you like to be identified, you said, Black American. Black American. When we spoke the first time off the tape, you said no one asked you, consulted you. Yeah, I, I, I kind of resented it, I guess. I, you know, I'd look up in the paper one day and Jesse Jackson and Spike Lee and some other people are officially calling, we are now officially called African Americans. And, you know, I kept thinking we didn't have a vote or a conference on it or a survey or, you know, who decided this and what was it based on and um, I just resented it and I've had a hard time 
using it. It's funny because, you know, I, I, I said, well, it caught on and I see all whites are trained now because <laughs> I see my um, father-in-law, he always says African-American and it's, it's a long term, you know, it's, it's, it's not convenient to use. Um, it's not as far as conversational. I guess too, I, I resent it because there's this, it seems that, that it, it, it helped to support this myth that why can't you all get along? You know, Africa is a continent. It is not a country. It's not, I'm Irish American, or, you know, my family was from, from Norway or whatever. It is a continent. It was, you know, it's made up of several countries and hundreds of languages. So to be 